look at Genesis 2. So if you've got some kind of device, Bible, etc., etc., do feel free to uh, open that up. That's where we are in Genesis uh, 2. <coughs> I won't mind that first bit, hun, sorry. Thanks. <laughs> it's all right. Thank you. Thanks. Those are the notes. I just put my foot there. <coughs> we there? Great. Thank you. Very good. Father, we uh, thank you for your care for us, that you watch over us, that you know us. We thank you that we can come worship you, pray for those among us that are not well. We can give testimony to your goodness, give testimony to you being there in the good times and the bad times. So we bless you. And Lord, now we pray, would you open up our ears, open up our hearts, open up our minds that we might learn from you and from your scripture. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're in Genesis 2 this morning. And uh, I think I'm going to more or less jump straight in. I just wanted to remind you that the key thing, or one of the key things we saw in Genesis 1, uh, was that God made Adam and Eve for a purpose. And a purpose was that he might have an intimate relationship with those who are his creation. And in chapter 2, we're going to see really something of how this intimate relationship uh, between the creator God and his created being, men and women, are going to work out. And we're kind of going to look at it under three headings. I've called them three gifts. The gift of life, the gift of the world, and the gift of each other. And hopefully you'll be able to make some sense of it from the notes that I've done you, though I don't think I'm very good at making notes so they may not be very good. I'm going to read for you Genesis 2, verse 4. I'm actually going to miss out verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. It just talks about some rivers. You can read it. I'm not missing it out for any particular reason, uh, just that there's lots of names in there that are difficult to read. It uh, doesn't particularly add to what I want to talk about this morning. That's, that's the only thing. I want us, I want us focused on, on really uh, some other things this morning. So I'm going to read verse 4 to 9, then I'm going to read 15 through to the end. So it says, verse 4, Genesis 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. Then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, we are going to jump in this morning. We've got a lot to go through, so... Fasten up your seatbelts, put your brains in gear, and here we go. Okay, I want to look at this under three gifts. The first one is the gift of life. And I actually want to think, start thinking about the gift of life in a slightly strange place by thinking about death, which sometimes may be a bit strange, but sometimes to understand something we're looking at, if we kind of look at the polar opposite or think about it, it may help us to get our heads around it. There was a BBC Radio for Any Questions panel of experts, and they were asked how they viewed getting old. And one panellist, to much laughter, said that basically he was looking forward to getting angrier, more objectionable, you know, the more classic grumpy old man. I'm going to be grumpy and old, and I'm going to be happy being it. But they all fell about laughing. But Dr. John Hapgood, who's a former Archbishop of Canterbury, he took a different line. He said that actually he felt growing old was an important experience as it provided a time of recognition that all of life was a gift from God. He went on to say that early on in life, the ability of things like a good memory or to run up and downstairs was taken for granted. But as you get older, you take these things less for granted. I can say amen to that. Some of you can as well. Habkud went on to say this, it becomes a time when you hand back to God those gifts and abilities that you will not need in the life to come. Talk about that one over your Sunday lunch. Someone who watched a relative die from a heart attack, the first person they'd ever seen die, they watched them struggle for breath until finally they literally breathed their last. And the person watching on said this, I remember thinking, is that it? Is that death? Yes, it is. At the beginning, God breathes breath into us. At the end, we breathe back to God. This is a key message for us to learn, both in the church and in the culture in which we live today. Because in our culture today, it seems to me that people see life itself as a right and not a gift. The attitude is that people don't even consider how comes they've been put on the planet. They simply demand that, that they are here and actually that everything that they want uh, should happen, and that somehow God is unfair, life is unfair, circumstances are unfair, if they don't get that. But when you think about it, the very fact that we have life is a gift from God. The fact that you are here today is simply because God has given you and me the gift of life. But unless we understand that, there won't be an underlying attitude of thankfulness. There will be an underlying attitude in a sense of demand, of right, rather than one of thank you God 
for this life that you've given me. And yet Genesis 2 makes it the point powerfully that life is a gift from God. God knows it. God gave it. Even if that which he created doesn't want to acknowledge it. In fact, even if that which he created turns around 180 and says, no, no, there even is no God. God knows and declares, I gave life. I gave the gift of life. So in Genesis 2, what we're introduced to is life as a gift from this loving provider. We actually get to see next week in Genesis 3 what happens when mankind forgets that. But this is where we start. See, the way that God created Adam is very simply described. It says the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, much in the same way that he made the rest in a sense of creation. But then something extraordinary occurs. It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. This is a picture of intimacy. It's what makes human beings distinct, as I said last time. This is God being hands-on, personal, intimate. This is God making mankind because he wants an intimate relationship with him. Mankind didn't evolve from some kind of cosmic soup. Some kind of something that was somehow floating around somewhere over millions of time and somehow grew a tail and somehow grew a leg and then, you know, started to, as a human. That's not what happens. God is intimately, decisively involved. God created DNA. God made and wrote complex genetic code. God sculpted every one of your and mine organs. God made the brain in all its parts and then wired it to the rest of the body. We kind of need to recapture this fact that all human life, including our human life, is remarkable, complex, and a gift from God. So that that we might have somebody to thank for it. Lots of the problems with people is they don't actually know who to thank for this life that they have, and so they end up moaning about it. The answer is to thank the God who gave it to us. That is the starting place. And recognizing this not only has a massive impact on us personally, if we will recognize it, but it also has a massive impact on society and us as a nation. Understanding this bedrock principle that Life is a gift from God. You see, valuing all human life, the very youngest to the very oldest, the most physically able to the least physically able, the most mentally able to the least mentally able, valuing all human life because it's a gift from God is the basis for care and justice in this nation. It is the basis. It's the bedrock. Caring for people whoever they are, whatever they've done, whatever they're capable of doing, and seeing them treated justly is not rooted in the fact that we're nice people. It's rooted in the fact that we believe that all human life is a gift from God. And you may wonder, how does this affect us, if you like, living in Britain in 2018? But let me give you a personal example. I I believe, personally, that it won't be very long if we continue as a nation on this same spiritual trajectory, that questions are going to be raised, for example, about caring for the elderly. And basically, the question is going to be behind, the question beneath the question is going to be this. Isn't it better to end their lives than keep them alive? Isn't it better? 
And maybe the first step will be to make it easier, more dignified, legal, that they themselves can choose to take their own lives. But maybe soon then the question's going to be asked, but you know what, the emotional burden of caring for these elderly people really falls on the family, the children. Shouldn't they really have the right to decide no matter what mum and dad think? That might be the second question. The third question may be, you know what, with the population expanding, the financial cost at the end of the day falls to the nation, shouldn't the government have the right maybe to step in if the children can't do what's really best for, the, for their parents? See, when you think about the theory of evolution, the survival of the fittest, the question becomes, at what point does the fittest have the right to kill off those members of the group that are not contributing to it and are taking from it? But the Bible says that all life is a gift from God and therefore we can never accept the weakest or the oldest or the neediest being written off, left uncared for or killed off. We just cannot accept it. And you may, not, you may think, Dale, what you are saying, I don't believe will ever happen. I pray it never happens. But just think through. The theory of evolution, the survival of the fittest, takes you there. And I'm only stating where that takes you. But I'm saying, that actually, the way to counter that is to actually believe that all life is a gift from God and treat it accordingly. So the Bible yeah, there's going to be difficulties in life, things we don't understand, things that cause us pain and tears and confusion. And yet I believe, fundamentally, understanding and believing that human life is a gift, our lives are a gift from God, actually helps us to keep a right perspective, helps us to keep the joys and the pains and the struggles and the breakthroughs of life in a right perspective. Your life and my life is a gift from God. Not simply our salvation if we're a Christian, our very life. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and that makes it incredibly precious. And that should make us incredibly thankful. So the first of these three amazing gifts I want to talk to you about from Genesis 2 is that God gives us an intimate relationship with himself. He gives men and women life, our very Life. I did this before. I'll do it again. Take a breath. God gave you that. And if he didn't, you'd be dead. It's amazing, isn't it? I think it's amazing. The gift of life. The second gift I want to talk about is the gift of the world. The second amazing gift we see in Genesis 2 is the gift of this world. Those that God gave this gift of life to, Adam and Eve, men and women, are placed in the context of beauty and fruitfulness in this garden called Eden. Now, the geographic location of the garden, people have searched for it, but it's, it's, it's not what's important. What's important is that we understand, no, no, this garden and this world that we have been given is a gift by a generous God. So when you read the description of it, we see it's a place of abundant provision. We see it's a place of diversity, of beauty. We see that it's good for food. God creates this amazing garden, this amazing place, diverse, beautiful, that also meets the needs of Adam and Eve. 
And you know, in this world today, even thousands of years later, it still provides us with the, with the food and with the drink and with the materials that we need to make things and live. And the reason why people starve and go without their basic needs is not because God through the world didn't produce enough stuff. The reason why people starve and don't have houses and other things is because of greed and corruption and war and we don't steward what God's given us. But we must understand this is a beautiful and abundant world and still it continues to sustain millions of people across the planet today. There's enough in it to feed and look after every single person who is alive today. So this garden, this place that God created for Adam and Eve to live was a place of beauty. It was a place of bounty. But what sometimes is difficult for us to get our heads around is that it was also a place of moral growth and challenge. Of moral growth and challenge. You see, there are these two particular trees. There's lots of trees in the garden, but there are two particular trees in the middle. One they could eat from, one they couldn't. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. They can eat from any tree. There's two special trees and they can eat from one of them, the tree of life, but they're forbidden from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says the consequence, if you do, will be death. Now, over the years, there have been lots of kind of suggestions, theories. What do these trees represent? And I think there's been lots of confusion among Christians. Not only what does it represent, but why did God plant it? Why did God plant those trees there? And I want to try and help us get our heads around it this morning. And the way that I tend to think about it is under, understanding this idea of wisdom. In a sense, knowing things, knowing good and evil. It's why it's called the tree of good and evil. Because although human beings are encouraged to pursue wisdom, there is a wisdom, a knowing of things that really belongs to God. In other words, we're, as created beings, we're encouraged in Scripture to understand as much about God, life, death, the world, the times we live in as possible. But there are a kind of couple of riders, caveats to that. Firstly, there, is an ex there needs to be an acceptance by our part that there are some things that we are not going to know because he's God and we're not, right? There are some things that God in his wisdom is going to know and that we are maybe never going to know. We don't have the right to know everything because we are not God. If we had the right to know everything, we would be God. And God says, you are not, I created you. I'm happy to tell you and share with you, but you don't have the right to know everything. And the second one is this, that what we do know, the wisdom that we have, the knowledge that we have, must be what God has taught us. Not what we've worked out ourselves. Not the theory according to Dale, or the theory according to anyone. But actually, what God says, and what God has taught us. Not what we decide it needs or should be. And so the temptation here, represented in the form of this tree, is not so much to eat a piece of fruit that God said not to in that sense. Yeah, it's, not, it's, it's not that. It's really 
This, this pursuit, if you like, of wisdom, of knowledge, without reference to God, if you like. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had only experienced good. Imagine that. Put yourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes at this point. All they'd experienced was good. No tears, no shame, no guilt, no fear. They'd only experienced God and therefore all they'd experienced was good. And it would have stayed that way had they have not eaten from this particular tree. So the temptation, it's about pursuing wisdom. It's about knowing good and evil, if you like, without reference to God. See, knowing things as an obedient pupil of God is fine. But when you want to pursue wisdom, when you want to pursue experiencing good and bad, when you want to do things separate from God, when you want to do things in disobedience from God, now that begins to be an issue. And this is really the issue here that we see in Adam and Eve. There is a, there is a lack of trust and there is a disobedience. See, Adam and Eve are in this beautiful, diverse, bountiful garden. It's easy to maintain. It's bursting with color. It's bursting with fruit. It provides all their physical needs. They can eat from any single tree that they like. Trees as far as the eye can see. Eat from anything. This massive permission. Just don't eat from that one tree. Just don't eat from that one. They're created by God. God is providing for them. They get to walk and talk with God, to live with him every day. They get to do everything that he wants them to do, which is not difficult or arduous, with him, under his loving hand, his watchful eye. They had everything. Adam and Eve had everything. Life couldn't get any better. Couldn't get any better. And not eating the fruit of this one tree was the way that God gave them to express that, to express their trust in him, to express that he was God and they weren't, to express that he was the one who was going to care and love them and that they were the ones to be cared for and loved by him and they were content with that. All they had to do was not eat one fruit to express all that. See, I've heard it said, oh, Adam and Eve couldn't help but eat the fruit. Rubbish. It's rubbish. Not eating the fruit wasn't supposed to be some massive hurdle. They just couldn't get over. It wasn't like Adam and Eve in the desert and they're so thirsty and they're starving and then God put the tree there and it was the fruit. It's not like that. They're in a whacking great orchard. They're in a wonderful garden. There's God right there. Just don't eat that fruit. Okay, I won't eat the fruit. I'll eat this one and this one and this one. People paint Garden of Eden as if Adam and Eve were having a terrible time. Oh, it must have been awful for them. It wasn't awful for them. It was wonderful for them. They had a whole garden full of trees, an abundance of fruit and food and love and security and peace. And they had gods. Right there. They had gods. The temptation was, would they as beings made in the image of God and therefore having a will which is free to act as they determined, would they reach out and try and take that fruit and in essence try and reach out and kind of make them something more than God had already made them? That's really what, the, that's what it symbolizes really. God, are you holding out on us? Is there something better? 
I just eat that, I'd, I'd know good and evil. There's more wisdom here. There's more things to know. God, you're holding out on me, really. I know I've got all this and I know you're here, but do you know what? You're holding out on me, really. It comes down to obedience and it comes down to trust. You see, God didn't set Adam and Eve up to fail. He set them up to pass. He set them up day by day to choose to trust him and love him and to express that by eating from every other tree, but not that tree. But the free will they have, because they're made in the image of God and God has free will. He just always decides to do the right thing every time. They also, being made in his image, had a measure of free will. They had to have the opportunity to not choose God so that they could honestly choose God. Are you with me? The answer to the question, why did God put the tree there, was because unless they had an opportunity not to choose God, you couldn't really say they had the opportunity to choose God. They had to have a choice. God wanted them to pass. He wanted them to choose him. Everything led to the direction of them choosing him. A beautiful place. Everything they needed. Each other. Access to God. Adam and Eve had a choice and the right choice was clear. It's like Adam and Eve were set their A-level test. It was one question. What's your name? That's like the test. It was like, what's your name? All you had to do was Dale Barlow. That's all, I, that's all they had to do. But they failed. Adam and Eve failed when failing was harder than passing. Do you see that? The odds are stacked, but they're not stacked against Adam and Eve. When people say, oh, God, he set mankind up for a fall. Wait till I see him. All that rubbish, right? We've got to understand that's not how God set it up. And, and the world that God put them in, the Garden of Eden, was evidence that God wanted them to pass. He wanted them to choose him. He gave them no reason to doubt. He gave no reason to wonder. He didn't put them in a terrible, horrible place and then say, but don't eat that. Oh, I was going to be really testing. God is not unfair. He's not unkind. He's not cruel. He didn't set mankind up to fail. He set us up to succeed. All Adam and Eve had to do was to continue to live with him in this beautiful place that abounded with every good fruit, but they blew it. And the consequence of that we see next week. We see the terrible com consequence of that. So if you really want to be cheered up, come next week. <laughs> but actually, what we see next week, I won't spoil the ending, but actually what we see is as soon as Adam and Eve get it wrong, God sets about a plan of redemption. God sets about, but we have to understand just how bad Adam and Eve blew it. And they didn't have to. Massive consequence, but God sets about restoring them. It does ask us a question, I believe. Because actually, I see myself in Adam and Eve. <laughs> so easy for me to live without reference to God, to think that I know better. Actually, if I could reach out, I could make more of life. I'd be wiser. Actually, God's holding out on me. He hasn't got the best for me. I can do this. I don't need God. I see it in myself all the time. So it does ask us a question. Are we going to be like Adam and Eve? Are we going to have this massive permission from God and yet still seek our own decisions, our own way? Or will we learn from God that actually he knows everything, he's not holding out on us, he wants to teach us things, but we need to be taught by him. We're not cleverer than him. The world would not work better if you or I were on the throne. We've just got to accept that.
God knows best. God has made it best. We see this in the garden. We see perfection. We're supposed to see perfection. God gave mankind this amazing, wonderful, beautiful world to live in. There's nothing wrong with creation, but we messed it up. But you know, we can still see this wonderful world that God has made. Can we not? We go outside, we walk around. Is it not a wonderful, beautiful world? Even in the messed up human state of the world at the moment, we still see it's bountiful. We still see it's beautiful. And you know, we can still wonder and we can still get a glimpse of this, that if this was the garden that God made for Adam and Eve at the beginning, that Adam and Eve messed up, how amazing will heaven be the place that God has prepared for those who love him to spend eternity with him? If this was God's initial go, what's that going to look like? (laughs) Second amazing gift, the world. The world is an amazing gift. Third one. Are you still with me? All right, good. I'll carry on then. I wasn't going to stop anyway, but I just, you know. Uh, The gift of each other. Okay, the gift of each other. In verse 18, it says, it's not good for a man to be alone. And me having spent four weeks in Holland on my own, I know that verse is definitely true. It's not good to get into all kinds of trouble. But it says in verse 18, it's not good for a man to be alone. So God did something about it. And what's stressed in this account of creation of male and female, we see this diversity, we see complementarity, we see companionship. You see, the text says that God provided a helper. And some people have wrongly Uh, deduced that women are somehow subordinate, weaker, worthless than men because of this word helper. But you know, the text doesn't support that nonsense at all. God himself refers to himself in scripture as a helper. But God is not subordinate or weaker than anyone. The word helper actually denotes that the helped one is not sufficient on their own. (laughs) There's something lacking in the one who needs help. Not that there's something less than the one who's coming to help. So the truth is that mankind cannot exist male or female only because we have been created by God for each other. We need each other. We need the diversity of male and female. And this is God's plan. God has the key role in this. He's the designer. He's the architect. He's the creator. He gave human beings the gift of different gender in Adam and Eve. And then if you like, he said, actually, in my design, I'm going to bring these two differences together. I'm going to bring them together in a marriage, a covenantal relationship. And they're going to get to enjoy another one of my gifts, which is the gift of sex. And that's going to lead to the fulfillment of when I said to them, go and multiply and fill the earth. They're going to do that as they have babies and babies and babies and babies. It's a very simple kind of plan that God had. We see it here in Genesis 2. And these words in verse 23 that Adam says, they're an exclamation of joy. Just put yourself in Adam's shoes. He's there and, uh, and, you know, God brings the animals before him and Adam gets to name them. But it says that actually there's no suitable, if you like, mate for Adam. Um, yeah, oh, camel. Mm. <laughs> Lion. Mm. Woodlice, I mean, that's how it is. This is not suitable. But then a rib comes out and God, you know, wow. 
I think that's, that's the, it's an exclamation of joy. It's not, right? It's joy. Wow, God, look at that. Man, lion, woman, wow. Me made for her, her made for me. Look, we're kind of the same, but we're a bit different. But wow, look at that, and all the bits and pieces kind of fit. Wow. Adam worked it out. Adam got it. God's not squeamish about these things. God worked it out, designed the thing. That's how you're going to do it. That's how you're going to make babies. That fits that. Thanks very much. It's easy. It's not particularly tricky. So when we look at this, we need to understand equality, unity, and diversity. It's important for us to see that men and women are created equal by God. We are worth exactly the same to him. No, neither one is more or less in worth of worth to him because they're female or because they're male. But it's also true that God chooses to make us different. God chose to make us different. And that diversity actually enriches the world that God made. So if a denial of equality in terms of valuing men and women based on their gender is a denial of God's gift in creation. But at the same time, if you ignore the differences between men and women, it's a denial of God's gift of diversity. So we need to be those who celebrate God's gift by maintaining diversity in equality. That there are differences, but we are equal in terms of worth before God. I don't think this is very difficult. I think it's got very mixed up through the fall and kind of how we live. I don't think it's very difficult when you read Genesis 2. And on that note, I just need to say something about the whole thing of male and female. Because I don't think I could go on from it without saying something. In this nation at this time... Massive pressure is being brought to bear through the court of public influence, kind of fueled by social media, that people can change genders, that they can go from one gender to another. And others are saying, I'm not going to put the sex of my child on the birth certificate so that they can choose when they get to an age that they want to. And there are others who are denying that there are any inherent differences between men and women. It's just what you've been conditioned to be like. And therefore, of course, you can just choose your sex, uh, whichever one you like, male or female, swap, change, etc. Let me just state this very simply for you. What I believe the Bible says is that God created all human beings and he made some of them male and he made some of them female. He didn't make any who could change. He made them male and he made them female. So we can chop and change and we can remove and add and we can insert and alter and we can put on different clothes and we can put on makeups and we can change what's going on outside the body or on the surface of the body, but we can't change what's going on on the inside. The DNA, the genetics, that what God made us to be. We cannot change the sex which God created us to be. He made two kinds, male and female. And simply by saying that we are a particular sex does not make it so. Any more than if I declared I was a jumbo jet, you might all agree with me, but we can't fly off to America on me because I'm not a jumbo jet. And you all agree with me. Yeah, of course you're a jumbo jet, Dale. doesn't make it so. I won't get off the ground. There are people who are confused about which gender they are. 
there are going to be more people confused about which gender they are. And anybody who is confused like that should be treated with love, with respect. They should be helped. There are a small percentage of people who are born without certain physical attributes, read their sexual organs, and they should be treated with love and respect and help. But I tell you this, if we as a nation are now going to tell our children that they can change, choose, swap their gender, then I believe that we are sowing crisis and identity crisis into them. As a nation, we are going to reap what we sow. As we move away from God's ways, the more confusion, the more crisis we are going to sow into young lives. How are we helping a child or teenager or adult who believes that changing sex is the answer to their problem when you can't change sex? Do you see? Just think it through. Take a step back from the media hype. You can't say that. Well, I can. Just take a step back. You see... Sooner or later, they're going to realize that it wasn't the answer. And now they have to deal with not only the original issue that made them believe that they wanted to change sex, but now they have to deal with all the heartache of going through the process of changing sex. In the name of freedom, people end up in bondage. Their issues are left unaddressed, while a solution that can never work at its core is gone after. And I believe that leaves them in a worse place than when they started. I don't hate people who want to change sex. I don't. I just don't think it's going to work. So how am I loving them by telling them, yeah, of course you can do that. I hope it really works for you. It can't work for them. It may work for a time in their brains, but it can't work because God's made them male or female. I'd rather say to them, why do you think you want to change sex? Let's talk about that issues. The world just says, no, no, freedom means you can do what you like, be what you like. Of course you can go from a man to a woman. We're not helping people, I believe. I don't believe we're loving people. I don't believe we should hate them. I don't want to hate them and plaque. I want to say to them, what's going on? Talk to me. What's going on in your life? Well, why do you think that? Can we talk this through? I don't think that's an answer. If I thought that was an answer because God said you could be male, female or choose, I'd say go for it. But I don't believe he does. So can we talk, please? Can we think this through? God made us male or female. He didn't make us so that we could change. I never believed in my lifetime that this verse would come under such attack. I never believed that. If you would have said to me 10 years ago, you'll be standing there preaching, in a sense, trying to convince the church that God made them male or female, I would have laughed at you. But it is under attack. It is under attack. But we shouldn't be surprised. If you're a Christian here, don't be surprised. Because when you turn your back on God's principles and God's ways, guess what? Anything goes and everything's up for grabs. Anything goes and everything is up for grabs. So we shouldn't be surprised, right? Our response shouldn't be hate. Our response should be, can we think this through? Can we talk this through? Can we tell you why we don't think this is actually helpful? When we get surprised, we can get angry. It doesn't help. Just need to think it through, not be surprised. Back to God's gift of each other. It's where we started. So God made men and women in his image to rule over his creation in relationship with him, of equal value and worth to him. But he made us differently. We are different. Men and women are different. Different men are different. Different women are different. Different. We're different physically, emotionally, different giftings, passions. But God didn't 
make us like that so that we would be in a battle. He made us different so that we could complement each other. So that together we might represent something of the image of God. You see, in all this, you have to go back to the Trinity. You have to understand that God is trying to replicate what he has. And in the Trinity, what God has is this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're equal in terms of they're all God. They're of equal value. They're of the same essence. They're made of the same stuff, but they have different roles. And God said, I'm going to make men and women exactly the same. They're going to be of the same stuff. That's why rib, rib, um, man of woman, man. Right? That's why that is. I'm going to make them absolutely the same value. Like in the Godhead, we're the same value. But I'm going to give them different roles. I'm going to make them differently. Because guess what? Father, Son, and Spirit are different. Spirit didn't come to earth, put on flesh. Jesus did. God the Father knows some things that the Son doesn't know because the Father hasn't revealed it to him yet. When we understand the Trinity, we understand why God has made us like he's made us. And actually, in male and female, it's not to be a battle between each other. It's supposed to be that we might complement each other and show something of the image of God. Show people this is what God is like. God didn't create the battle of the sexes. I think it sickens God. Rebellion and the fall created that. We are God's gift to each other. Male and female, God's gift to each other. Husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, friends. We are God's gift to each other. We're supposed to be different so we can complement each other. And when people look on, we can show them something of God in our unity of equality but difference in how we are. So there you go. Three gifts. The gift of life. The gift of this world. The gift of each other. I've finished. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.